Amen, amen. Grab a seat. We've got a lot to do today. If you have a copy of the scriptures, you can turn or tap your way back to Galatians 6. Galatians 6, my name is Ben, one of the pastors here. And today we're continuing our brief series called Tell the Truth. And we're going to be talking a little bit more about the kind of burdens that we bear. Last week we talked about God's command to us to bear one another's burdens, to share the burdens that you're bearing with other people and to bear the burdens that other people are bearing. We talked about how one might do that, why one might do that, and we kind of talked about it in a pretty general way. We, we kind of thought about burdens in a more of a hardship category. And certainly, I think m many of us would admit that there are certain hardships we deal with or bear. But there are other kinds of burdens we bear uh, that I think we're even less likely to talk about. Uh, I think you can have things that are hard in your life, but that's not really the same as admitting to things you do uh, that are shameful. You know, when the Bible talks about burdens, I think there are many things that we might sort of put on that list. Um, but certainly the Bible talks a lot about sin. And while it's possible that you might be pretty open about some of the hard things in your world, you have people you're friends with and you tell them about some of the things that are difficult in your life, I don't know how often, and I kind of want to think about it with you today, you talk to other people in your world about things you do that the Bible calls sin. I, I think it's the kind of thing that we like to try and hide. And maybe you can confess it and you try to confess it in a way that's sort of like respectable. We have the famous sort of job interview tactic where they ask for your weaknesses and you say, well, I work too hard and I, I care too much. And I think I sometimes I'm just too invested in my job. And they go, huh? And you're like, see, they're actually strengths, you know? And so we say, oh, you know, do we have, does anybody have sin in their life? And you have to share, mm, you know, sometimes I spend a little too much time on, you know, whatever. And they're kind of respectable sins that we might try to confess. But Biblically, I think it's really clear that you and I are not in the right in our lives. There are a lot of things that we engage in that God hates. And we get caught up in it. We do it a lot or we do it regularly. And, and we get it to a place where it starts to spin out. I mean, any sin is not okay, but, but there's a place in your life where things can get really, really bad. And I think... You have a resource that you're not using. In Matthew 7, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Now, that's classic Jesus. Fantastic teaching. He gave them, he gave them a principle, don't judge. He gave them a way in which they should think about it in their relationship with each other. And then he gives them an illustration that is so like grotesque or, or, or exaggerated that you can't help but let it stick with you. What he's saying is why would you tell somebody else that they need to change in some small way while in your life is some drastic, awful thing that needs to change? He said, why would you try to get the speck out of somebody else's eye when you have a log hanging out of your eye? Now, that, that is grotesque. I, I don't know if you took a second to try to visualize that scenario where somebody's head is dragged to the side because of a board hanging out of their face. And they're like, hey, you got something in your eye. <laughs> like that's A is, is funny. But B is, yeah, you might say, well, I appreciate that and I don't want this eyelash in my eye. But before you do that, can we work on the um, impalement that's coming out of your face? Um, yeah. 
Now, what Jesus is saying has implications for the way that we see one another, and we'll talk about that more in a second. But what he's saying also has implications for the way in which we can see one another, because I think we all know this. It is much easier to observe the sin in somebody else's life than it is to observe the sin in your own life. It's one of the properties of sin. Any good poison does that. It tries to make you unaware of the fact that you're being poisoned, but you can see it in somebody else. And I think that also provides a value for us because it means that other people in the community can become helpful for you in seeing something that might kill you. Here's what we want to see in Galatians 6. Here's what it says, and this is maybe where you turn, Galatians 6. And if you don't have a Bible, we'll have these verses on the screen, so don't panic, but we'd love to give you a Bible and a readable English translation. This is in the New Testament. One of the leaders of the church is writing a letter to one of the local churches and telling them under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit how they should be living. He says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression... And we would use the word sin there. Transgression means to go against or to go across a line that God's drawn. You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now this is a hard topic. I think this is one of those where you can kind of nod along and then try to get as quickly away from it as you possibly can. This may not be one of the ones where after it's over on the drive home, you start talking to your friend or spouse about it and saying, hmm, how can we apply this one? I think this is one we all kind of together want to pretend isn't in Scripture, but it is. We are supposed to bear one another's burdens specifically when it comes to the, the transgressions that we're in. Now, the word that he uses there is caught. And I want to take a second on that word, caught, because the way in which we as a community deal with one another's sin says a lot about the kind of principles of our community. I want you to think and be aware of how God feels about sin so that we can try to model our behavior toward one another on our king and not on, you know, judgmental practices from being proud and and awful. When we think about being caught in sin, I don't want you to think that Hope Church has like FBI style stings going on all the time where people are on a wire waiting for you to say an incriminating thing and then caught in transgression. Well, let's go to Galatians 6. I need to help you to bear this burden. No, we are not actively doing that. Maybe we should. I don't know. Pastorally, maybe we should be doing that. I don't know what entrapment looks like when this kind of thing, but we could figure it out. (laughs) But it often happens that people get caught up. They get caught. Now, maybe you get caught in the sense of somebody walks in or the accountant points out an irregularity or, or there's like an actual caught moment and then, you know, I get a call. But, but often too, you just start realizing there's problems and you can start kind of finding that those problems go back to a bad practice. And you try to stop doing that practice and realize, God, you're kind of entangled in it, like Hebrews talks about. You're kind of caught up in this thing. It's not easy for you to set it back down. And so you're reaching out. Well, if anybody is caught in one of those transgressions, what do we do about it? As a church, we can't actually be okay with it. We're in kind of a difficult spot because we want to model ourselves after the way that our king deals with this kind of activity. And the king calls transgressions treason. 
We can't be okay with it. We can't just make our peace that we're all going to sin, and so let's just all be okay with sin in all its many forms. But neither can we be really aggressive and judgmental towards one another in how we call each other out on our sin. Now, we need a lot of wisdom here because the way in which we're going to go about pursuing godliness says a lot about the gospel that we believe. And, and there are people, by God's grace, who are coming to Hope Church that don't have a Christian background or have something that seemed Christian, but it was really, really different once you scratched a little bit. And for those people, there's a lot of learning that has to take place. If you've been in the church for a long time and you spend a lot of time with Scripture, there's still a lot of learning that needs to take place about what righteousness actually looks like. And that's going to happen too. We say getting caught up in sin, and there are addictive type things, and there are really destructive type things that are happening all the time. But also as you grow in Christ, and you start to gain a little bit more vision, and your conscience becomes a little bit more sensitive, you're going to become aware of things that you have been doing that the the Scripture actually outlaws. Okay, well that makes sense. There's some things we need to read the Word together and find out God actually is against. But as you start to understand that God does say no to something, you're not just doing it in ignorance. You're actually doing it because you know that God says no to it. Well, now we've got a problem. I understand there's sin that's difficult to say no to. But I also want to understand biblically the possibility that people might say, no, 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 I I know God hates this, but I don't. I'm going to keep it in my life. In Matthew 18, Jesus also teaches about sin when he says that the church needs to interact with people that are caught in their sin and and try to lead them to repentance. And if that person refuses, then you, you find another person and you bring them with you and you say, no, 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 really, this is what the Bible says and you need to change in this way. And if somebody continues, then Jesus has them take the whole church to talk to that person. It says in Matthew 18, verse 17, if he refuses to listen to the, the pair of people or the small group of people, tell it to the whole church. And he refuses to listen even to the church, then let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Do you understand what we're talking about here? It says right here from the lips of Christ, That if you have sin in your life and you just made peace with it and you refuse to repent of it, there is a point at which the Christian church has to tell you there's no evidence of change in your life. There's no evidence of the Holy Spirit's presence in your life. We are now going to treat you as an unbeliever. That doesn't mean we like kick you in the face and try to like, you know, cast you out of our community. No, it means we love you like crazy, just like we do anybody that doesn't believe in Christ. But, But we now treat you as an unmember rather than as a member of the body of Christ. What we're dealing with here is a big deal. And this guy, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, was a German Christian in the time of the Nazi sort of, you know, craziness that went on in in World War II. And and he talked about Christian community really eloquently in a book called Life Together. But, But he says, the more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him. And the more deeply he becomes involved in it, the more disastrous is his isolation. Sin wants him to remain unknown. It shuns the light. In confession, the light of the gospel breaks into the darkness and seclusion of the heart. 
The sin must be brought into the light. The unexpressed must be openly spoken and acknowledged. All that is secret and hidden is made manifest. It is a hard struggle until the sin is openly admitted. But God breaks gates of brass and bars of iron. Listen, as you start pushing against this stuff, you start to realize just how strong it is. I think many people have this idea that they could change whenever they want. And then you have to ask those people, okay, well, have you tried? (laughs) Oh, well, no. Okay, well, once you try, you might find it's not as easy as you thought. What this Dietrich Bonhoeffer guy is saying, he's just talking gospel. He's saying that God does have the ability to break you free, but an instrument that he uses in that work is often believers speaking to somebody else about what's going on in your world and having them speak gospel, but also accountability into your life. This is the kind of thing that Jesus does. Old Testament prophet named Micah talked about this way in which the Lord leads us as conquerors. And it was shared with me from uh, David Edmonds sent me a thing. This guy, Charles Spurgeon, was talking about it. But it says, Micah chapter 2, verse 13, Jesus, and it's Micah, so it's Old Testament, but he's talking about the Lord who opens the breach, goes up before them. It's like he's breaking through. They break through and pass the gate, going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. This is the kind of freedom that's possible. It's pictured here in a really beautiful way, but it's reality in the life of many believers, if you'll just start asking around. And maybe the the thing we were talking about from Jesus sounds like sort of a three strikes and you're out kind of faith, but But that's not what Jesus is talking about, and I want to be clear about this. There's a difference between I want to repent, and yet this is still part of my life, and I refuse to repent. Matthew 18 is dealing with that second category of I refuse to repent. The the thing that the gospel talks about is actually an incredibly gracious kind of gospel. Jesus in another place in in Luke 17 says... Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And you go, okay, that's religion. That sounds like what I expect churches to do. But listen to this. And if he repents, forgive him. Ooh, that's more difficult. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. That's the kind of Christian community that we're talking about. Do you see the both and there? There is both the confrontational realization that I have to rebuke you for the sin that's in your life. You have to rebuke me for the sin that's in my life. But if I repent, you forgive me if I did it to you. Now, it was just sin in my life. I mean, that's between me and the Lord, and you're going to help me with that, but... But if I do something to you seven times in a day and seven times in a day come up to you and say, man, again, you know, I just got to say, I'm, I'm really sorry about that. Then Jesus puts a pretty intense imperative on it and says, you must forgive him. We're not talking about perfect living. We're talking about a commitment to a constant fight against the sin that remains in your life. So you might be ignorant of sin, of the big board that's hanging out of your face, but when you find it, or when you're found out by it, you get caught up in it, what happens next? 
That's what I want to help us to see because we have to be instructed as a community to deal with this as it comes up. But then also for those of us that are considering talking about our sin to other people, we kind of need a, a heads up on how that community is supposed to respond. Otherwise, you'll never do it. But listen, listen to how the Lord instructs us to deal with people caught in sin. It says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, we're not just talking about the ones that we consider irrespectable and versus the ones that we consider respectable or okay. It says, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, just means more mature there, should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Now read between the lines of this a little bit. What is he saying to the people who are supposed to be these spiritual ones who are going to restore the sinner? What he's saying first is gentleness. And if you read in Galatians 5, you get to the fruit of the Spirit. It's the thing that we memorialize in our great little song about the fruit of the Spirit. It's not a coconut. You want to be a coconut? You can't be a fruit of the Spirit. And then the fruit is love, joy, peace, patience. You know. All right. It's a, it's a list of qualities that grow in the believer as they have the Holy Spirit. One of those fruit is not a coconut, but gentleness. And so he's saying you, you are to employ, you who are spiritual, meaning having the Spirit, are to employ the fruit of the Spirit as you interact with people that are confessing sin or trying to walk away from their sin. And then he says, watch yourself lest you too be tempted. Now, if sin is just surgery, like if leading somebody and restoring them is surgery, where they've got this awful wound and you, the spiritual, or you, the surgeon, is going to walk in and try and, you know, cut out the gangrenous flesh or whatever and, and sew them up and try and get them through this, like you would have no temptation to join them on the operation table, Right? Like, there's no part of you that's like sawing the thing off of them that would be like, hmm, maybe I'll save a little for myself. Like, you, you, you would see a great distance between yourself and the poor person on the operation table. But that's not the illustration, is it? What he's describing is that you're going to lead somebody away from something that you too are going to be tempted by. You who are spiritual are also, like the person in confession... A sinner. Do you see how that totally changes the game? If we're going to become a people who do Bible, where we live authentically with each other and confess sin to one another, then we've got to do it in a gospel way, meaning that we also receive somebody's confession as sinners with that person. Man, if, if I also am a sinner... Can you imagine the kind of grace that I want to show to another sinner? In the Reformation, so history of the church, big deal, happens in the 1500s, 1600s. This guy, Martin Luther, is sort of the head of it, especially one big piece of it. And he's a pretty intense guy. You can't be a reformer and be soft. Like, he's a pretty mean, intense guy, and I expect him to be. Like, you got to read him because he's really important, but you're kind of nervous to read him because you expect him to yell at you. But listen to what Martin Luther says in this sort of thinking about these verses. When your brother is in sin, run to him. Run unto him 
and reaching out your hand, raise him up again, comfort him with sweet words, and embrace him with motherly arms. That doesn't sound like religion, does it? Look at how kind and how gracious somebody is to someone who's just been caught in something shameful. Run to them, reach out your hand and raise them up and comfort them with sweet words. Why can you do that? Because you actually understand the gospel. And here's where we get into that concept of judgment. Have you ever heard somebody throw that out where they say, well, don't judge lest you be judged? Listen, I'm doing what I'm doing and you should not judge me. It's pretty powerful as an argument because if you're a Christian, you should immediately check up and go, wait a minute, am I doing that? Because the same authority that said this is right and that is wrong has also outlawed judging. It's all throughout the New Testament and Jesus' teaching, but it's echoed in Paul when he says in Romans 2, Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. In the scripture, God's really clear that you and I are not the judges of other people. And when we're judgmental towards other people, we're doing something really sinful and really hypocritical. There, there's a problem there. Now, now, what I think can be confusing is that when people say don't judge, they often sort of mean something different than what Jesus meant. Now, when Jesus says don't judge, he's saying that you shouldn't put yourself above somebody else as though you're right and they're wrong. But often what people say when they say don't judge in our culture is they mean don't make a judgment or don't try to say one thing is right and one thing is wrong. Now, if they say, don't make yourself God that you decide what is right and what is wrong, we would say, absolutely. But who would say that there's something wrong in calling what a thing is what it is? Like, when we talk about understanding what sin is and what sin isn't, or confronting somebody with a sinful practice, we're not saying that we're God and we got to decide, but we are saying that God said what they're doing is sin and it can't continue. Like, there's a reasonable ability to see a thing and call it what it is. And when you do that, you are making a judgment that the item you're looking at is a donut or a rake or or roach killer, but it's not anything that you want it to be. It is a thing that it is, and that thing that it is has properties that are going to be consistent. Donuts are not rakes, and if you use them interchangeably, you're going to run into problems. We have that understanding with life where we say that just anything goes. Well, that's really a skepticism and a pretty deep skepticism about what's right and what's wrong. Being tolerant is something totally different. See, the the biblical perspective is not to have skepticism about can we know whether or not things are wrong. The biblical understanding is to say, no, 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 I'm not going to be a skeptic, but I do realize that I'm also a sinner. I think that's what allowed Martin Luther to be really sweet to people who are in confession of sin rather than to be disdainful of somebody who's been caught in something shameful. What's the difference? Well, he realized that he himself is just like that person, that he too is a sinner. I think that's exactly what Paul's talking about in Romans chapter 2. We're not in a competition with each other. We're also, we're, we're likewise sinners with the people caught in sin. Here's what I understand to be judgmental. So 
I personally can have a somewhat uh, abusive relationship with food. I, uh, I eat a lot and I, I eat for reasons that have nothing to do with hunger. Uh, I resonated, there was an internet chef who said, um, any size pizza is a personal pan pizza if you're sad enough. <laughs> and I would just like pull out sad and put in anxious and go like, yeah, like any size pizza is a single serving, you know, if you're anxious enough. So uh, because of, you know, those practices, I also have a fitness app. In my fitness app, you know, you put in your calories for the day and it's trying to teach you about nutrition and stuff. And I've got a lot to learn there. But it also has a scroll of just content, just different videos that it wants you to watch to try and help educate you about making better decisions on your food. And in one of them, it was a Q&A with their sort of celebrity trainers. So they've got these trainers in a room and they all look, you know, immaculate. And they're sitting there and they're asking these people questions and they're answering. And one of the questions was, okay, you know, you had a bad weekend, you splurged and you ate a whole bunch of pizza. What do you do next? And every trainer in the room, there's maybe three or four of them, immediately go, and the disdain on their faces, was it came through the video. It stuck with me. This has been maybe three years ago that I saw this video, and I still think about it (laughs) all the time. We had pizza yesterday, and I was thinking about that guy, that trainer, and his disdainful look at me. And they said, what do you do? And they all like, oh, like if somebody were to do that and they survived, well, yeah, they would just need to try better tomorrow. Like, I, like they couldn't conceive of the hypothetical that somebody would do that. And if they did, like, I don't know. If they, if they make it, they should just try again, I guess. Like, I wouldn't even want to talk to that person. It was so judgmental. And yeah, these people have clearly conquered themselves. Like, their appetites are mastered when it comes to their food and the amount of working out that they do because their bodies show it. Like, you don't look like that genetically just on, on your own. Like, you have to do a lot of work there, right? But as soon as they had some level of victory in an area in their life, they looked down on the rest of us that aren't there. Now, I think people don't want to talk about sin for a lot of reasons, but one of them is because as soon as you do, you have somebody else that can say, well, because I don't struggle with a, a temptation towards gambling, then as soon as I hear your story, I've got no mercy for somebody that would fall to such a stupid idea. Like, you know the numbers. The house always wins. Why would you ever, oh, okay, well, never do it again, obviously, but, but maybe I've got an accountant friend that can help you figure out how to get out of debt here. Is that the gospel? That's what we mean by being judgmental. Biblically, to call gambling a sin is not a judgment. That's just a right understanding of the situation. Yes, it involves calling a thing a thing, but that's just how logic works. Being judgmental is to go a step further and say, well, that's not me, that is only you. I'm now better than you and good luck in your process of change. Hey, is that the gospel? Man, I think as a church, we have a possibility of treating people like that. God forgive us. Instead, I I want you to see how God sees you in your sin. Let's start there, and we're not, this is the final piece here. but, But when we understand that, then we understand how we should see each other. When God sees you in your sin, he doesn't look at you like that trainer looked at me through that video. When God sees you in your sin, it's kind of like catching your toddler, 
You ever see those videos online, like the fail videos or whatever, and mom walks in and the toddler is just covered in peanut butter? And you're just imagining the logistics of what happens next. And you hear the mom, and obviously she chose to, like, film it and post it. So, like, she wasn't in a complete, you know, meltdown. But, but oh, honey, what are you doing? And then they look up, and they can't really open their eyes because there's peanut butter on their eyeballs or whatever. But, oh, uh, <laughs> found the peanut butter. All right. That's now a situation that mom has to deal with, Right? But she does it out of incredible love towards the child. She both loves the child and cleans up the peanut butter. Both of those things happen. And in fact, cleaning up the peanut butter is very much grounded in her love of the child. Because if I walk in and your toddler is covered in peanut butter, I walk back out. (laughs) Not my toddler. Good luck. I don't love your child. You love your child. Now, maybe I'm growing in love, you know, whatever. But no, (laughs) your cleaning up of the peanut butter comes from your love of the child. Now, if it's worse, then how much more? If you walk in and your child's not covered in peanut butter, but covered in blood, the reaction is more extreme, but it follows the exact same path. I love the child. So I'm going to stop what is hurting the child. God loves you. When he comes to deal with your sin, the extremity of his reaction has to do with how dangerous sin is. But it comes from the extremity of his love towards you. Here's Psalm 103. This is not just a metaphor. He says, he doesn't deal with us according to our sins or repay us according to our iniquities. That's what religion says. Religion says, be right, get right. Do wrong, be wrong. And God just judges. But that's not the God we serve. Yes, he is the judge, but he's a merciful judge. He doesn't treat us based on what we've done. He treats us in his love in a forgiving way. How so? Well, you go to verse 11 and it says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. When it says as high as the heavens are above the earth, it doesn't just mean stars versus atmosphere. He's saying the spiritual heavens and the physical earth. There's not just a distance that's being crossed there. It's like a different kind of distance. And when he says that, it's not just a beautiful metaphor because in the New Testament, looking back on the old, we realize that that's exactly the kind of love that Jesus had for you, that he was willing in his love to transgress, or not transgress, but transition across that distance to go from heaven to earth because of his steadfast love towards those who fear him. It goes on then to say, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Again, not just a metaphor. Jesus literally took your sin from you and removed it as far as death is from life. How did he do that? Well, that's what the cross is. The cross is the place where God made himself man as Jesus lives a perfect life and then takes your sin on himself, takes your death on himself in order to give you life. And why does he do that? John three sixteen. because God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him won't perish, but will have everlasting life. And now when God looks at you, even with your transgression, there's a part of you that imagines he hates you, but he doesn't. 
He knew your sin when he sent Christ to die for it. And so looking at you and seeing you exactly as you are, we get verses like Zephaniah 3.17 where it says that the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. And he will exult over you with loud singing. That's not the kind of thing that somebody who hates somebody else does. It's the kind of thing that a parent does over a child. There in all the different sort of modes that that child needs and in passionate love with the child. Now, following from that example, the way that we call one another back is going to be certainly with gentleness. So let me ask you, who knows you at Hope Church? Who bears your sinful burdens with you? By God's grace, I have many different people that I'm able to confess stuff to. And they don't get to forgive me as God, only God's God, but they get to pray with me. They get to remind me that God still loves me. And they get to help me not keep doing that same thing over and over again. Who do you know at Hope that's like that? Listen, community groups are a great sort of open possibility for that. And just like we said last week, you start sharing, people might, you know, get a little freaked out. But that's their fault. That's not your fault. They need more gospel, not less. Imagine the kind of culture where everybody is in constant need and we could, with both truth, call sin, sin, and grace, love sinners and restore them. That's what the church is here to facilitate. I mean, you think about Jesus and he's got pictures of Jesus as like this very righteous figure and this judge, but he's also the one who made a way for you to be forgiven so that wherever you're at this morning, he can come to you and a bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not quench. The gentleness of Galatians 6.1 is seen first and foremost in Christ. Do you know him? Oh, let us help you. That's why we exist. We want to introduce you to that love. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, I do ask this morning that you would help us to understand our sin in the view of the gospel. Let us see it how you see it. And let us, as we see it, understand a little bit more of your steadfast love. Your love being steadfast is impressive if the thing that would make it not steadfast is big. And our sin is what might shake your love. But no, Father, seeing our sin totally, you sent your son to die that we might be totally forgiven. I pray that the people in this room would hear something of that grace and respond. If they're not believers, Lord, that they would be tempted towards understanding more about that faith, that they they might know more about that Jesus who loves them like that. But Father, if there are believers in the room that are hearing this, I pray, Lord, that they would evaluate who it is that they speak to about their sin and why maybe it's so difficult for them to talk about their sin. Whether it's a desire to just keep sinning, whether it's a desire to seem respectable, or whether it's just, Lord, that they haven't really connected with anybody yet. I pray that you would give us the resolve to change that. Trusting your gospel and trusting your goodness and desiring to be pleasing in your sight. We love you, sir. We pray these things in your son's holy name. Amen.